0: Welcome everybody, I'm James Putzel, Professor of Development Studies at the LSE. And this is the last of this year's um, Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series. We've had a great series and we have a fantastic uh, speaker today to to kind of wrap up the series um, uh, for for this academic year. Uh, the topic um, here, uh, which is looking at the the gene uh, revolution and its impact on on communities and farmers and welfare, is absolutely a central, controversial topic. And Ron Herring, who is Professor Emeritus at Cornell University, has undertaken many years now of research on um, first GMO and then genetic editing in agriculture. He's worked mainly on South Asia through his career in fields of agrarian political economy uh, and agrarian reform. In fact, when I started my PhD research, his book was pivotal to me. which, is, uh, which was the book Land to the Tiller, The Political Economy of Agrarian Reform in South Asia, an absolute classic. Anybody who wants to work on reform topics even today should be reading that book. Um, Ron has um, um, worked on political ecology and development and social conflicts uh, around science and genetic engineering. I can remember one occasion when he stood up in front of a big, big audience, and I think it was in the Netherlands, when Via Campesina was there, and Ron was talking to the results of research. There was a lot of heckling going on. He had my support, <laughs> and but he, you know, he's a man who has, and a scholar, who has absolutely anchored his work in empirical research. So um, there's several articles that he's published on the topic in the Review of Agrarian Studies. Um, is, um, uh, a paper with uh, the International Consortium on Applied Bioeconomy and um, in the Annual Review of Resource Economics. Uh, he has a book, Transgenetics and the Poor Biotechnology in Development Studies. And so, you know, this, we're, going, we're going to hear a, rend- a rendition of his account of this debate and this crucial strategic issue. Now, we couldn't have somebody better to respond. Ron will speak for a maximum of uh, about 50 minutes, 5.0 if possible. And then I'm inviting Aniket Aga, who is Assistant Professor of Geography, now at SUNY Buffalo. We're happy that we're not keeping him uh, up late. He was at Ashoka in Delhi until recently. Uh, His interests span science and technology, democratic politics and development geography. He has published a book titled Genetically Modified Democracy, Transgenetic Crops in Contemporary India, published by Yale University Press just two years ago. Um, uh, Along with, you know, both of these gentlemen have incredible (laughs) CVs and awards of various kinds. And I I just wanted to mention that, um, along with um, Chitran Ghada Chowdhury, he's he's co-directed Seed Stories, a documentary film highlighting issues of indigenous agroecology, heirloom seeds, and agrarian change uh, in the Eastern Ghats. Uh, This documentary previewed at the Kolkata People's Film Festival, and has also been selected for the Chennai International Film Festival. So, you know, welcome, Annika. We couldn't have a better interlocutor. And what we would like you to do is, you know, after listening to, to Ron, to provide about a 10 minute uh, response, but then to engage fully in the Q&A along with Ron. So without further ado. Okay, so, so we, have, we, we have a
1: picture of a crab uh, at the beginning for on the same page. Uh, thank you, James. So uh, this is an impossibly um, broad topic. And uh, when I complained about that to James, he said, well, I chose it. I don't quite remember it that way because what I chose was too esoteric or something. But this is what we're looking at. And what I want to say is that the the future of this species on the planet depends on an interactive effects of science, state science, and state politics and history. Uh, demonstrate the tensions and contradictions in these interactions, which mediate the effect of technical progress. Uh, And in our time, I think climate change is the dominant of these. And if we're talking about social justice and global futures, and particularly rural welfare, we have to talk about agriculture first, and the uh, concomitant changes that are affecting livelihoods in the rural rural areas of the south. Um, Just a topical point this incredible mess at the American border right now, hundreds of thousands of people lined up trying to escape places that are, are are riddled with a lot of different problems, but one of which is climate change. They can't make a living on small farms in Central America. uh, And they're fleeing to the North, hoping to get other kinds of work. That's happening all over the world. Uh, So rural poor, Getting this right means we will improve prospects for social justice, and we might have ways in which bioscience could enhance uh, the prospects of that population. Uh, James Putzel mentioned land reform. Of course, land reform was uh, supposed to do just that, uh, and in most of the world uh, largely failed to do just that. So summer of 2016, the first authenticated meal uh, having crispered food, served up in Sweden. Uh, the meal was tagliatelle with crispy fried vegetables served on genetically engineered cabbage, grown directly on campus. Now, this is an important caveat to everything I have to say. Note that it, the first one came in a European country and it was served uh, on campus, grown on campus by a scientist on that campus. This is, this is a completely different model of technical change than that which is often portrayed in the media as being dominated by huge uh, corporations and private licensing. So this, this is open meal. Um, so Sweden looked at this plant and said, okay, it's not a GMO. That is, there is nothing added to the genome of this, this particular cabbage. But this is in Europe, so the German agriculture ministry immediately says, yes, this is exactly what we need. Um, but the French environment ministry says, no, no way, this is a GMO, we're not going to have it in Europe. So that's the basis of the conflict. If it's not a GMO, then what is it and what is a GMO? Now, uh, what we're, we've found historically is that the GMO has been an astonishingly Astonishingly effective mobilizational device uh, for people all over the world. Um, It's been used as a symbol of um, big business, pro-business media, uh, news sites that sold out, leftist populars, wiki sites. This is biotech genocide, Monsanto collaborators, Nazi legacy of science. Now, this is not a joke. The Nazi legacy of science, a justification for murder, was based on bizarre ethnic science that tried to prove a master race. We also have, um, feeding that dialogue all over the world was the uh, seeds of suicide, the the conference James Putzel talked about. uh, In fact, Vandana Shiva was supposed to be on that panel and she didn't show up. But um, uh, the idea of seeds killing farmers, farmers being driven to their death by cotton seeds with one extra gene out of 20,000. It's an extraordinary story, but it did take uh, the world by storm in many ways. You can find this virtually everywhere. Now, interestingly enough, in 2008, um, then prince, now king, Charles, stated in New Delhi that he blamed gmos bt cotton for farmer suicides and he went on to talk about the ways in which this is destroying the rural economy so this is a a, a meme that has spread very widely very quickly and was mobilized for people who uh supported the rural poor this is the same theme of biotech genocide but we've added an element here we not only have uh bodies we have the the ultimate killing machine is roundup roundup is is a a plant uh Control mechanism that is much much less much less toxic than many of the alternatives like atrazine, widely used. It's uh, it's not water soluble. It decays in sunshine, um, and I have some in my garage. Nobody likes plant killers, but weeds are competitors with field crops, and everybody who farms has some need for uh, getting rid of the competition. So. How are crops genetically modified? There is traditional breeding, and I'll show you a picture of that in just a minute. Um, Then we have mutagenesis, which comes out of of, uh, Japanese experiments to save uh, pear trees, um, which is basically you blast the genome of a plant with radioactivity, uh, which the Japanese had just recently... I've uh, been horrified by. If you haven't seen the film Return of Godzilla or Godzilla minus one, you should see it. So the, the radiation, it changes the genome. It scrambles the genome, causes mutations. Some of those mutations may work out. Some mutations don't work out. The ones that are helpful are bred. Then they become the basis of uh, new plants. This becomes important now because these uh, genetically modified plants by mutagenesis Have been grandfathered in the EU to not be considered as GMOs now that we have gene editing as an alternative. Explain that in a moment. But just to, to see what we have here, we don't know what genes are affected. We only pick plants that look like they have expressed genes that work. We don't know about the genes that don't work. RNAi interference and transgenics, both of these involve specific. Genes, we go to specific genes and change them in one way or another, perhaps add a gene. Now, both of these are tightly regulated. The mutagenic plants are not GMOs. The RNA interference plants and and the transgenic plants are called GMOs, tightly regulated all over the world. Now we have gene editing. And gene editing overcomes the imprecision and negative effects of both mutagenesis and transgenics. Uh, there's, there's a paper showing that, that the, the um, transcriptomic errors in transgenic plants are much higher than those, uh, much lower than those in mutagenic plants. So In other words, transgenesis seems to be a somewhat safer way to deal with plants than mutagenesis, which blasts the entire genome. And then finally, there's gene editing, which does not attack the entire genome, but rather with some precision, cuts and splices uh, to add bits and pieces of DNA. Okay, so this is uh, this is uh, Teosinte, the genetic ancestor of of maize, uh, seven thousand years ago, inedible, by the way. Uh, and now this is this is maize. This is a transformation that took place through selection and breeding, hundreds of generations of selection and breeding until we end up with maize that now has these edible characteristics. So this is the, um, uh, the way that uh, gene editing works. And this is a really clever thing. You see this little uh, Cas9 enzyme and the guide RNA. The enzyme is a defense mechanism evolved in bacteria. The bacteria evolved this to deal with viruses because viruses are the main enemy of bacteria. Uh, other than I don't know hand wash or something, but bacteria have been fighting a battle with viruses for for millions and millions of years, um, and this particular mechanism that they evolved has uh, a recognition uh, mechanism, uh, and and then it has a mechanism to cut the um, the DNA where the virus is infiltrated, so it cuts and then repairs. So, um, right, so there's a a cleavage you cut. You can replace that section of DNA, uh, or you can just cut it out. So if it's a bad bit of DNA, you get rid of it. This is another way of looking at it. There's a CRISPR molecule. It has guide RNA that tells it where it's supposed to go. It finds the place in the uh, sequence and cuts it. This This is just a picture of the same thing with the sort of more humanized version of you taking bits and pieces of DNA out, replacing them. uh, You search, cut, and edit. And that's what CRISPR does. Oh, okay. So, so going back to the original question was Sweden, right or Germany or France, how would we know? Acceptable innovation depends on regulatory state science, but state science is national. But biology respects no ephemeral lines on maps. There is no global state. So nation states are under constant threat from both populism, which opposes both state and science. Um, And this is exacerbated in what has been called since 2016 Oxford Dictionary's word of the year, post-truth era, when the idea of any fundamental messaging network to establish truth has been undermined by global discourse in the post-truth era. Right, so, so we think about utility and um, disutilities and state science. In the 19th century, electricity was protested everywhere and with good reason. There are risks in electricity. There's no question about that. There were also risks from burning things in your house in lanterns. Um, the Chicago fire was evidently caused by one of these. So the question was, what do we do about the state science that tells us what's safe and what's not safe. So that that brings the, um, uh, the question of utility versus um, possibility of hazard. This is a critical point. So uh, if you ask yourself, uh, your cell phone has clear utility, none of us could live without them, I suppose, But then again, this study says the cell phone radiation can cause tumors, brain tumors, and there are many parents that will not let their children use cell phones precisely because of this evidence. But that's an individual uh, decision in a way. Uh, And increasingly, I I think it is increasing, we find that uh, populism um, says regular passengers like us can fly the plane rather than the pilots. And that's something that gained a lot of support in this particular cabin of an aircraft. And this is increasingly what we find, certainly in the United States, we had uh, vaccine denialism. We had uh, pictures of the attorney, the uh, Surgeon General of the United States being hung uh, in effigy um, all over the United States. 22% of the people in this country do not believe in the results of the last election. Um, And so there's a tremendous uh, opposition now to evolution, to the idea that we have a history of slavery. These things are being deleted from textbooks in many states. So the the, the populist influence of of sort of the authorities don't know what they're talking about, and we the people have the correct answers, we just have to mobilize uh, and overcome this rigid state science that has been imposed upon us. This is vaccines, and of course they were opposed uh, greatly for good reason uh, at the time, because there were a lot of problems with vaccines. But here's the catastrophe in the United States now. Uh, The argument that autism is caused by vaccinations for common childhood diseases, which began with a fake scientist in London who was later, later exported to the colonies for his the all foul deeds. Um, this myth of vaccinations causing autism has created a tremendous industry in alternative treatments of autism, which is all fake, absolutely fake. Um, but vaccination rates in the United States have been falling. We've had measles epidemics, which we did not have before. Uh, and then we're having this question of, of, people not requiring vaccination to go to school in many states or relaxing vaccination requirements. Uh, And this is led by the kind of anti-vax activism, uh, which started with the the autism uh, fake news. Interestingly enough, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is running perhaps a third party quest to become president of the United States, is one of the leaders of the anti-vaccine movement and and has been very effective at getting people who are writing about vaccines fired from their jobs by attacking them through public media uh, and attacking them through lawsuits. So science is inherently vulnerable um, because it has epistemological commitment to tentative conclusions, limited findings, subject to revision. So people demand um, that. Um, It be settled for them. But science always says more evidence could overturn what we believe now. A single mammalian bone in the Silurian period would cause us to overthrow the theory of evolution. We have to go back and start over. It's a powerful theory that can be powerfully uh, disconfirmed. Uh, So we have have commitment to tentative conclusions as opposed to certainty. If you're burning field trials of GMO crops, or you believe in creation science, uh, as many people do, then there is no evidence that could possibly change your opinion on these things. And science is expensive, and scientists are not disinterested. They do have a material interest in what they do. And then scientists disagree, the inevitability of fringes, and we will always have those. So uh, with all of these difficulties that I've mentioned about public knowledge, Populism, attacks on the regulatory state, if we overcome those as a species, and because science is natural is national, but the world is not national, there are no boundaries. What might there be? I, I gave you a source in the Precy that I sent for the uh, some of the sources on biofuels, bioplastics, bioremediation, All of these are now in process um, of making bioplastics out of, um, that is degradable plastics. We're now working on, it's being done in many parts of the world now, um, bacteria that are able to digest plastic bottles uh, and and make compounds of them which can be recycled through nature. We're working on, uh, people are working all over the world on efficient water use nitrogen fixation in plants so that we can use less topical application of fertilizers, uh, invasive species, and we'll get to that in a moment, uh, and food waste, tremendous amounts of food waste in the world. And there are ways of preventing um, the degradation of food by more microorganisms by engineering the components of our food system. So there All of these are in process. Uh, A lot of research is being done. You can Google any one of them and sort of see what sorts of uh, possibilities there are. Okay. Uh, We are able to put biosensors in plants that can tell, that can tell scientists by by checking remotely uh, whether they are infected with something, whether they are moisture uh, deficient, or whatever. So there's biosensing as a major contribution to agriculture. Uh, Japan did the first uh, GM-edited tomato, which has um, production of GABA with the tomato. Um, genetic tomatoes that consume less water and increase bionutrients. Um and then finally, uh, there are a number of other vegetables, number of vegetables being worked on around the world, uh, which are working out in many cases, and in many cases are still in test trials, okay. Now, um, gene therapy, um, this has now been successful. We have a, a therapy for sickle cell disease, sickle cell anemia. I mentioned this because, the people sub- subject to sickle cell anemia in the United States are primarily uh, Black, Afri- Black-, Black Americans who grew up in African societies historically. Uh, in areas with high malaria uh, infestations, it was helpful to have sickle cells. Uh, and they were part of the body's response to sickle cell uh, to mosquitoes carrying malaria over the centuries. In the New World, that was not nearly so useful. And the descendants of Americans, of slaves that were brought over by the Americans, have been especially affected by sickle cell anemia, which is a terrible, terrible disease. We now have the possibility of gene therapy, uh, which stem cells are corrected uh, by a beta goblin gene and transferred to viral vectors transportation of the corrected stem cells back to the patient. That actually has worked, it's tremendously expensive, but previously we had no cure at all for sickle cell anemia. Uh, as our, one of our favorite guy, we just went from malaria, the 80s, aegypti mosquito, uh, which carries dengue fever, yellow fever, chikungunya, Zika, and perhaps equine encephalitis, uh, this particular mosquito uh, is now being uh, attacked via uh, transgenic mosquitoes that change the ratio of males to females in whole populations using gene drives. Now, uh, there's an explanation of this in the paper that I that I posted on your your sort of notes for the lecture. This um, this particular mosquito. Um, there's an immediate reaction of we can't mess with the ecology by changing the genetics of a part of the ecology. I mean, we we may not like these mosquitoes, but after all, they're part of our ecosystem, and we can't really mess with that without risking a great deal. Well, it turns out that the Aedes aegypti mosquito, as you might see from its name, is not native to any of our ecosystems. This is an old world species. Uh, Aegypti gives you a hint on that. It's come to the new world via uh, transportation of various goods and people across the continents and has has created an enormous mess in this country because in the Western Hemisphere, because we don't have adequate responses. And that's where we have gene drives. It's explained in the Heffron and Herring paper on uh, driving the ratio of female mosquitoes down relative to males. And female mosquitoes are the only ones that bite human beings. Okay, so um, I'll just end with Nina Fedoroff's presidential address to the the Association for Advancement of Science. She is scared to death of forces driving science into a dark era. I think that there is good evidence that is true. um, And the crises facing us come faster and faster. We're going to need new crops, um, we're going to need new responses to new diseases, and none of this is going to happen with the kind of apparatus we have either with the politicization of science, the weakness of state science, um, or with our current scientific methods. So if we're going to survive as a species, uh, we're going to need a great deal more of technological uh, information, better politics, and more effective states. This is a tribute to Aniket Aga, who's uh, written a, a beautiful piece about the brinjal controversy in India. So these are these are kids loving their brinjal.
0: Okay, Ron, thank you very much.
2: Okay, Aniket. Okay, okay, thank you very much. This is uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. This is uh, I'm really excited about being here, and of course. Um, it's both uh, a pleasure and intimidating to be speaking right after ron uh, as james said in the very beginning ron has taught students of agrarian studies so much and his insistence on taking farmers decision making farmers choices seriously and looping it back to questions of science and politics is really a gold standard in the in agrarian studies now Uh, Since I have only 10 minutes, I'm going to restrict my remarks to certain, you know, um, to more areas of disagreement with Ron than areas of agreement, uh, just to spawn uh, an an interesting uh, conversation thereafter. So let me start by saying that, um, you know, Jack Kloppenberg notices, makes an observation in his um, outstanding book, First, The Seed, that the promise of Genetic approaches, of course, uh, Jack is at that point. Talk, uh, Jack is talking about recombinant DNA technology, not genome editing, in his book. But nonetheless, I think he has uh, he observes that biotechnologists are far more gung ho about what uh, ge- genetic approaches can do for agriculture than plant breeders. And I make this observation because I actually do not think that a straight line can be drawn from the wild grass to maize, to herbicide-tolerant maize, and then genome-edited maize. Uh, the question is not which is riskier or which is less risky. The que- I would simply like to state that compared to plant breeding, uh, which, which also has risks and mutagenesis has its own risks, uh, the risks in the case of recombinant DNA and genome editing are different. Secondly, I I, uh, I make this observation about plant breeding versus what biotechnology s- say about these technologies to point out that there is a very sharp division even among the sciences as far as, so I do not think it's, it's uh, i think one can make a mistake in jumping too quickly from looking at what biologists say to you know the activism around these crops forgetting that biology is one among many sciences and therefore and no one's and no particular body of science has a monopoly on the on, on the truth of these technologies uh, in fact, in my own fieldwork, I one of uh, I interviewed a very serious senior plant breeder in India, who, who gave me this metaphor. He said plant breeders have to think about designing a car. Biotechnologists make uh, you know worry about a particular screw and then make statements about the entire car. Uh, he went on to say that I find the promise uh, I find recombinant DNA technology not particularly relevant for the kind of crops I'm making. And I and in any case, you know, I have to uh, think about the whole crop rather than particular genes. So, um, now, you know, you don't have to take me at my word and you don't have to take Ron at the word. I would just like to say that there is a sizable debate within the sciences as far as the risks and uncertainties of these technologies go. and. Some of the most marginal voices in the debate are actually of of those scientists who take a systems, complex systems view of these topics. So I have ecologists in mind. And ecologists um, in in particular have raised certain, um, have raised a lot of caution about going, uh, you know, about translating straight from, you know, changes at the genetic, at the genome level to statements about what happens once these crops are growing in dynamic ecologies. Um, Ecologists have powerfully argued that you have to take a complex systems approach, in which case biotechnology, which is a sub-branch of biology, uh, which is one among various sciences, which feeds into agricultural sciences, is hardly the last word. Now, let me switch gears in the interest of time and make a few broader observations, which since this this seminar is about cutting-edge issues in development. We have just emerged, it's not even been two, three years since a devastating global pandemic, which is very much linked to capital intensive models of agriculture, transnational finance flows and environment destruction during the pandemic we in india saw the largest mobilization by farmers in independent india as we speak right now there's another mobilization and which is being um, you know fairly violently suppressed and now these this this farm movement of 2021 was a was pro, the proximate trigger was the three farm laws uh, today the demand the top demand is for support prices uh, floor prices Uh, But they have also raised urgent questions of access to land. There are also questions about uh, indigenous land rights. And there are even demands, not in the top five, but, you know, if you look at the articulation coming on the street, there are also demands about breaking strangleholds of caste and patriarchal farming, sorry, power, uh, ecologically inappropriate models of agriculture, and justice in food systems. My question to all of you is that which of these big problems, uh, whether it is pandemic vulnerability, or I should also mention that recently there's a paper which confirms what anthropologists have been seeing for decades, that green revolution varieties are de- are, have lower nutrition than heirloom varieties, and the nutrition quotient of these varieties is steadily declining. Um, again, you know, this is an observation that, that, um, that so many, uh, Marina Welker has made in the context of Indonesia, Akhil Gupta has made, Vasavi has, AR Vasavi has made in the context of India. And, you know, Ron, uh, said, and I, I can see why he says that, you know, science is tentative. At the same time in history, there's a continuity about, you know, green revolution, recombinant DNA, now genome editing, making very confident promises and shutting down the kind of concerns that are coming from the field. So my question is, which of these problems, whether it is declining nutrition, or oh, sorry, which of these problems, whether it is pandemic vulnerability, technology-induced unemployment, ecological sustainability, which of these are addressed by you know, even partially in BT cotton, BT eggplant, GM mustard, to take three biotech crops on which India has seen the most debate, and or for that matter, genome edited crops. So my broader comment is that we cannot be approaching the question of biotechnology and development from the biotechnology side of things or genome technology side of things. We have to ask, uh, because that would mean asking what can developmental needs do for biotechnology rather than the converse question, which is what are the developmental needs and then prioritizing which technology can most reasonably and in a most cost effective manner meet those. So to start from the promises and perils of genomics would be to implicitly ask what development can do for biotechnology. Now, no doubt biotechnology can offer some, and I'm using the word biotechnology loosely to include genome editing. No doubt uh, uh, genome editing can offer some important developmental outcomes, but though, but that may not be the only pathway to those outcomes, nor might genomics be the most cost economical from the perspective of at least public spending pathway to those goods. Starting from the development side of the relationship requires debate and participation across the axis of inequality that marks public life. It also requires an acknowledgement that other fields of science may be better equipped for the context, certainly of the Global South, but even Global North. For instance, nutrition, public health, plant breeding, and systems ecology. For these reasons, I would suggest that we have to raise the question of democratization. I... I appreciate that questions of democratization can slip into a wholesale rejection of scientific epistemology, but that is one end of the spectrum. Uh, I am more interested in make on a democratized discussion, on democratizing the discussion, which is always an unfinished project, which is always uh, imperfect of setting the agenda of priority setting in science and technology from which will emerge the agenda for sciences. This is why for me, I think the old problems of development have not gone away. And I agree absolutely with Ron that the new problems of um, climate change, climate catastrophe has only got added to the mix. So therefore uh, I would once again, I would end by saying that we have to start from what are our developmental outcomes, and and that again, you know, you and I cannot settle. There has to be a democratized or democratize, At least we have to attempt a democratization of that conversation, and then come to the agenda for science and technology, rather than saying that here's something which can do wonders, and let's see what problems it can solve.
0: Thank you very much, Annie. And Ron, do you want? to go straight to the students' questions or would you like a brief reply first? <laughs> okay,
1: brief reply. Um, I, I agree with all of Anika's larger systemic issues. The problem is that none of those larger systemic issues have, like the quality of democratic society and so on and so forth, none of those solve concrete problems that are crises. Let me give you one example, just one example the first uh, recombinant DNA um, uh, pharmaceutical was insulin. We were running out of the guts of pigs and cows to be scraped to make human insulin. And the rDNA that was created, one little snip into the DNA, we now have insulin available uh, without killing pigs and cows and scraping their innards, which itself was not a sanitary process. It was not a safe process, but that's what we did until uh, 1972 when recombinant DNA made uh, insulin that had a single insertion from uh, a a genetic engineering approach. So I just wanna say that there, there are problems that are not solvable by improving the quality of democracy or rethinking development or any of those things, but they're very concrete problems for people. People die of of um, diabetes uh, in huge numbers. In fact, the whole subcontinent is especially uh, prone to diabetic conditions. So it's, it's not a question of, of uh, uh, solving every problem with a SNP in a gene. It is that there are some problems that can be solved with only a SNP in a gene, for example, um the 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 problem with uh, sickle cell anemia in the united states which which was a horrific disease for so long and now there is a cure for and the, the same thing could be said of so many things we've developed vaccines for and uh, without those vaccines we wouldn't have survived the pandemic um even though our president told people they could take a a, a cow deworming medicine i know you want me to stop i'll i'll stop uh-huh. But the science in this country okay. uh, overcame the political nonsense that came out of the White House uh, and the right wing.
0: Thanks, Ron. Let's. Um, can we? Do we have questions in the room, Laura?
3: Yes, we do have one question. Okay. Hopefully more coming.
0: So uh, the... Jeremy
3: is coming down, and he'll okay. ask his question, and, and Matt as well.
0: If he stands more or less where you are, and then the speakers can see him here come come and look this way
3: yes i think
1: yeah
0: i think you he just oh, hello can you hear me
1: yeah
3: yeah Hi.
1: uh so i guess my question is what as you said before biology does not respect uh any state cultural line boundaries what is or can be done about cross pollination where it's not wanted especially uh as some of these you know variations will streamline as agriculture continually has uh, different varieties of crops into the most marketable form, what can be done for peoples and cultures who don't want to engage with uh, GMO cross-pollination?
0: Thank you.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Another question?
3: Yes. Hello. Um, It's quite a broad question, Uh, just Kind of i guess it, it's interesting to have some sort of consensus or conclusion maybe is is gene editing a solution to agricultural productivity to feeding the world or not
0: good question is there a third question in the room
3: not not for now maybe we can start with those two
0: okay
1: ron um genes are going to flow um there was there is a technology that was called the terminator uh, and much of the world was worked up against the terminators international protest against the terminator and the object of it was to prevent cross-pollination um that patent was not owned by monsanto as everybody said it was owned by the usda and, and a small cotton company pre-monsanto um you could in fact in theory, stop uh, cross-pollination. I'm not sure that it has uh, any important effects because the GMO uh, is an ideational concept. So a farmer that does not want a GMO, uh, it's hard to say what he would do. In Germany and France, they have very strict uh, limits of geography. So you you can isolate areas that are growing transgenic crops from areas that are not growing transgenic crops. Uh, that's possible, and I think in rich countries uh, where you don't care about food prices and you don't care very much about um, land scarcity, I think these are these are reasonable kinds of solutions. I, I don't think this is a feasible so- solution where people have two acre crops, three acre three acres of land, five acres of land. It doesn't seem very feasible to me. So if an extra gene shows up in one of their crops. I think that that is just one of the externalities of having multiple people growing multiple crops in multiple areas.
0: Yeah. Um, Do you want to comment on that, uh, Anika?
2: Certainly. Uh, Okay. I'm going to, I'm also going to respond a little bit to Ron's response. Okay. Which is yes, uh, there may be problems which can only be solved by you know, sniping, but, sorry, snipping a gene. But in humilin in recombinant DNA insulin is a much more of a black boxed product than exactly the question of cross-pollination, you know, gene flows and all that you get when you have plants growing into ecology. Now, if pandemic kills, so does unemployment. So does malnutrition. I, you know, we have to remember that food food is a much broader category than rice, wheat, maize, and the handful of six or seven crops in which you have GMOs, of which, um, you know, of course, one, one of them is like cotton, which only is, you know, as a food crop, it's only as an edible oil, you know, in some areas of the world, it's crushed into edible oil. So when we are talking about food, actually, we have to recognize that this model of capital-intensive agriculture has produced low prices and um, cheapened food in only a handful of main cereal crops and industrialized meats. In there are other kinds of food items which are as culturally important, which are actually scarce and very expensive. So again, my my submission to all of to in, in response to Ron is that. You know, there has been excellent research, emerging research in the field of agroecology, which does not need gene genetic tinkering. It works with biodiversity. It tries to keep the seeds in the hands of farmers and it works with highly productive polyculture systems. And, you know, if we are talking about feeding the world and if we are talking about democratizing these debates, Let's not be so quick to ignore systems-level solutions to systemic-level problems. Um, And I'm perfectly willing to admit that there may still be a few things which can only be uh, solved by gene sniping. But have we even? How much have we really invested in systemic system-level solutions which works with farmers rather than you know tries to put technologies in their hands for a price?
0: Okay, I'm sure Ron would like to comment back on that. but also, I remind you, Ron, of the second question that was the broader question about the possibilities of gene editing, you know, really increasing productivity in agriculture, because, you know, this is a, a huge issue and a huge problem for farmers. Um, particularly, if we started looking at farming and across sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you know, there, there's a big challenge, and I think there's a social and an economic, a kind of political economy challenge to increase productivity in agriculture. But um, I, I think, I think the student wanted to know about the potential of this technology to contribute to increasing productivity. Maybe a bit like new seeds for poor people of the past. Right. Um. I. I
1: think that Aniket has gone very, very macro. And uh, I think that is that is appropriate as a general framework for thinking about objectives and where do we go next. And now uh, James goes very micro and says, well, what specific things and specific crops would help farmers uh, in Africa? And I, th- those are both appropriate questions, but... The answer to the second one is not solved by the first one. If you have a problem with infestation of a particular parasite that kills plants, you have infestation of soil miners that destroy the roots of plants. So various kinds of normal biological processes that are destructive to plants. I mean, the whole African system, you can imagine marketing problems. You can imagine size and scale problems, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're talking about, productivity of the individual plant, the health of the plant and the soil, then you have to figure out what has gone wrong. And we know in evolutionary terms, there will continuously be things that go wrong. And we have selected a narrow range of plants that we have have sort of become totally reliant on, some of which are not particularly reliable. But if they have problems, they've got to be solved. Fungus infestations, all kinds of things of this sort may be solved by plant breeding but i just wanted one one thing for anika it it took eight years of research and field testing to get a a bt brinjal for india Uh, that was shot down by um one person a minister uh, who didn't like it had a political following that that required that he stay in their in their bandwidth that brinjal um which had one change that allowed it to resist its one pest enemy, which was very destructive. And farmers will tell you, they didn't like to, to actually sell these crops in the, in the market because they were damaged by the, this infest, infestation. Now, uh, that, that same BT brinjal has gone to Bangladesh where it's done extremely well and now being grown in the Philippines. Uh, it was a public sector project and was transferred free of patent rights uh, to both uh, Bangladesh and uh, to the Philippines. And in fact, it's come back to India as a stealth seed because Indian farmers find that it's useful for battling this one particular problem that on a two-acre farm, growing brinjals can be devastating if it gets into your crop and you can't control it. So that that's
0: my answer. Thank you. Uh, just before we go back to the um, to the room, uh, Ken Shadlin, you have a question.
4: Yeah, hello, Ron. Thanks very much. I uh, enjoyed that. I always always love listening to you and reading your stuff. I, I was wondering with regard to sort of, this is a bit broader, but in terms of the trust and mistrust in science, do you think that that varies according to where the science comes from? So what I have in mind, for example, in the pandemic, here in the UK, we all took the AstraZeneca vaccine, but in the U.S., when I tell family and friends that, they laugh because it's regarded in the U.S. as a bad vaccine. Yeah, and, and the U.S., everybody loved the Pfizer. I mean, it came from Germany, but they regarded it as American and the <laughs> Moderna vaccines. Um, and I'm just wondering, it, it Thinking about sort of the trust and mistrust in science that you observe in India, does it matter where the science comes from, or is is that sort of an irrelevant factor?
0: I could just tack on to that, and, you know, specifically uh, for Aniketh also um, to comment on the BJP and Modi's government's attitude towards this, because they seem to endorse science and some places when it, it it kind of furthers Andani's interests, but they're very anti-science, like other forms of right populist politics uh, in other domains. Yeah, go ahead, Ron.
1: Yeah, well, I I, I I'm <laughs> okay. Um, where to start? Ken's point about um, nationalism and, and it's a, sort of the reaction of where something came from or what it can be tagged with, or having its national roots, I don't think there's any cure for nationalism, and that's precisely why it's so difficult to make global process progress on anything. Um, we can't have a climate accord because nations that produce petroleum products are adamantly opposed to it. Corporate interests in the United States are opposed to it because they make money off petroleum products. So we're having trouble at the the level of particular interest of particular industries, and they are associated with particular places. Now, um, I don't know about that vaccine uh, hesitancy marked by nationalism, but I can tell you in this country, it was decisively marked by political affiliation. Places of of, um, high Republican strength, the kind of red belt in the South and so on, had much higher levels of vaccine rejection and much higher levels of death from COVID, precisely because they rejected the idea of vaccination per se. They wouldn't know whether it came from outside or inside. So the demagoguery around China, for example, now everyone's opposed to everything coming from China. Um, but if you're buying a refrigerator or a VCR, it's highly likely that you buy a Chinese one because <laughs> that's what's in the market. So I, I don't see that happening, Ken. It's it's kind of a political rhetorical point, but I don't think people behave that way at all. And I, I don't know about the AstraZeneca versus um, the Pfizer vaccines. I've, I've had every vaccine that came on the market just because I, my uncle died of polio before we even had a vaccine against polio. Um, and I have a number of friends who my age who are, who were affected by polio as children, uh, and this is something that we have now conquered with a vaccine. So I don't know where agroecology comes up with new vaccines. Period. Any
0: case?
2: If you want. So, um, see the for me. There is no, I mean, there's no unitary science in the singular. There are bodies of science, sciences, there are bodies of science, which oft, sometimes look at the same object and come to very different conclusions. So it is from, as far as I'm concerned, a political exercise in judgment of, you know, which, how do you calibrate different of, uh, bodies of science and the evidence emerging from it into some kind of an appropriate policy? Now, um, you know, I am not only talking about the big picture. Um, There are, so, you know, herbicides, which which Ron spoke about earlier, are, you know, are very important in a particular model of farming, and that is monoculture farming. I have myself seen intelligently designed polyculture where weeds are not so much of an issue, and therefore you can manage without herbicides, and which are very productive farms. Um, you know, their land equivalent ratio, and some of this is published research, I mean, it's not something which, you know, I'm just telling you that I have seen, there is evidence of it, which is published in peer-reviewed journals. Ditto for fruit and shoot, you know, uh, eggplant um, has pest problems, and which, some of which can be solved if you do intelligent, if you use eggplant biodiversity, And you, and uh, that's of course, provided you have access to it, plant biodiversity. So yes, so my, you know, I would still say, uh, I would come back to it that, that different, even before we get to politics and activism and nationalism, it's not like there is a singular scientific consensus on many of these questions. And I keep coming back to this, that ecologists have a very different take on these questions than molecular biologists. As far as your question about Prime Minister Modi goes, I think this government is very supportive of uh, genomic technologies. They have allowed a class of uh, genomic technologies to go through without scrutiny from the environment ministry. Now that itself raises questions of democratization, but uh, in the sense that there was never much of a public discussion, even an attenuated public discussion on that decision. However, some of the older GMOs stay stuck in courts and where the government is batting for them, but, you know, ultimately the courts will decide. Can I just add one thing about Modi? Okay. Uh, yes, I, I mean, I, um,
1: Deepak Pentel's mustard that he modified as a public sector scientist in, in Delhi uh, many, many years ago has been resisted continually by everyone on the ground Um, And it's now been approved by all the social, the science in India has approved it at every level. But now it's stuck in the court because people don't want to have uh, the genetically modified mustard. Now, the alternative, which India does, say import huge quantities of GMO uh, canola oil from the United States and Canada. So the alternative is instead of growing a mustard seed, which is a much healthier oil, a much better oil and can be grown on small scale, grows beautifully in Rajasthan. You go there in the spring, magnificent mustard fields, but it doesn't have the productivity to make profits for farmers um, that uh, they would have with this genetically engineered mustard of Deepak Pentel, former vice chancellor of Delhi University. And I think the Deepak Pintle was just kept down and pushed down by, um, uh, attacked viciously by people who basically didn't know what they were talking about, but were opposed to anything that scientists produced as opposed to something that they preferred. With the consequence, we're eating GMO oil from Canada and the United States.
0: Thanks. Be- before I go back to you and get uh, on, on that, Uh, We have some two students with questions in the room, and I know Laura does have a question, and so does David Lewis. So let's take the two students and Laura first, have another round, and then we'll come back to David and other students who come up with their questions. So go ahead uh, in the room.
1: Hello, thank you very much. Um, I had a couple of questions, maybe a bit broad as well. I was wondering a bit more about the question of democracy and whether this is really a question of the nation state or is there any type of bottom-up approaches where there's alternative political structures of farmers or unions or organizations that are challenging uh, the the dominance of a nation state in terms of deciding which types of uh, processes are going to be used, transgenic or GMOs or... Uh, gene editing or whatever the process might be. Um, I was also kind of curious about the relationship between labor and capital-intensive agricultural practices, and wanting to know how gene editing is affecting the the labor and a bit about the knowledge economy that's taking place. Um, so just going to keep it kind of general.
0: Jaron, thank you. And then I Very think much. there's uh, Matthew, Max, uh, uh, Elliot, Elliot, <laughs> um, Annika, You mentioned that the nutrition of GMO varieties had declined and I was wondering if you could go a little bit deeper into that and why that is the case. Okay, and Laura?
3: So I had a a sort of two-part question. I guess the first question is is returning a little bit to what Ken said about where science comes from. And when you were answering that question, you were mainly talking about like geographically where it comes from. But I, you know, I I remember reading this great book um, by uh, Catherine Kramer, who was talking about kind of populism in Wisconsin and and why people in rural Wisconsin were turning so much against both uh, public school teachers as well as the University of Wisconsin. And her research kind of was pointing to the fact that you know, the way that people in rural areas now experience higher education is in- incredibly costly, is out of reach. And so when their kids are going to university, there's a kind of sense of resentment. Um, and so her research was kind of looking at what at kind of popular understandings of why people in rural areas have this kind of suspicious view of the university. And I wonder whether the kind of populism we see is partly an outcome of of changes to higher education and science that have been driven very much around commercialization and corporate interests, and whether that is kind of shaping the way that people understand these kinds of sciences. And then the second part of my question is if you could say a little bit more about the kind of entry barriers of doing this kind of science, and the degree to which this science is something that's largely happening in in universities and research centers in the United States or Europe. Or whether you know the science to do this is something that you know uh, universities and research centers can do in the developing world outside of these big internationally funded research centers, because I think it does matter, like where the science is done in in shaping how people understand it. Thanks.
0: Yeah, I imagine there's big corporate involvement in the research too. So, uh, go ahead. Uh, you want to take those three, Ron? Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs>
1: small, small uh, pile on my plate. To take the last one first, um, I, I think the great thing about CRISPR, and I, I will be a defender here of of this process, it came out of of two um, two scientists. Um, there was a battle between Harvard and Berkeley over who had the patent rights, but but. There is no way to enforce any patent right in this technology. Uh, I asked Jennifer Dudna, since I have written constantly about stealth seeds, that we have all these international laws and national laws, but you can only grow these varieties, not those varieties, all of which have been uh, evaded by peasants all over the world. I mean, BT, BT rice getting to Europe, despite China banning it and the EU banning it, it happened for years. BT rice. Okay, so... Uh it I asked Jennifer Duden, I said, I've always been in stealth seeds, uh, that these regulatory frameworks and these police state kind of restrictions and so on don't seem to work. Same like drug trade. And uh she said, Well, no, he said, she said, CRISPR is like scarless surgery. You cannot find the scar because when you shift something, there's constant trans uh transcriptomic error in every time DNA replicates, you get small errors. Most of them have no impact on anything. But if you just look at a strand of DNA, it's going to be very hard to tell whether this transcriptomic error or whether someone has simply snipped out a bit of DNA that was harming the organism. It is not a findable thing. So how would you ever enforce these patents? Uh, It is... you know, so it is certainly the case that in and uh, Wageningen University, I just say one more thing about universities, this came out of universities, Berkeley and Harvard. Uh, Wageningen University has said everything that it does will be available patent free around the world. Uh, I don't think that we're going to have a serious problem with, enforce- with uh, the patent regimes that we've seen in manufacturing and various other kinds and copyrights on, on films and so on. I don't think those problems are going to, to show up. Um, now, the United States and uh, Kathy Kramer's book, it's a brilliant book. I, I like Kathy Kramer a lot. So here's the problem. Um, this anger, this populist anger that's, that's uh, welling up um, and, and indeed is, is evidenced by, by the incredibly high death rate we have from private weapons in the United States. This anger bubbles up into horrific uh, social violence both against science and against ordinary people, against gay people, et cetera. So um, it, is, it isn't gendered. Um, it it has been, I think it's been gendered more than Kathy Kramer uh, thinks it has. It's true that there's a class division. Uh, it's a pretty clear class divide between university-educated people and non-university-educated people. There's a red-blue distinction between those two groups. And the, the red group is much more uh, populist in their orientation against science, against authority, and against education, certainly against uh, anything that isn't in the Bible. Now, unfortunately, um, this is a male problem. And so the death rates among males are, are increasing faster. The suicide rates, the failure rate of American males compared to females is quite dramatic. So this, this science, culture, formal sector kind of advancement is increasingly female, not male. And the anger that that gives, uh, especially sort of white males, uh, is is very difficult to manage and a solution for. So our, our split is not so much against science and non-science, but it is the way that it affects society and it gets gendered. And it's true that rural areas of the United States have been long um, distressed by the concentration of power and wealth in, in the big cities and in the universities and so on. That's, a nat- that's the nature of, I think, many countries, but the United States especially uh, powerful in our politics. And then there was the question about, um, gosh, I can't remember now, The uh, oh, the... the whether there are alternative small scale uh, research and development institutions um, that are outside the, um, the global system. I think increasingly, in, increasingly that's a very difficult thing to imagine on a, on a global scale. In other words, uh, problems that are very local should be solved with investigation of local ecologies and investigation of local plants. Um, But these things do spread. So when you have a generic solution to a particular kind of problem, it can be used anywhere in the world. Um, And if that's if the vector that you need to control or something that that needs a solution in terms of soil quality or soil ecology, uh, those are questions that have to have variable answers regionally. But the basic principles behind solutions may well come out of pure science. So. I think that's true. And I can't remember the other question about,
0: uh, uh, okay, that was bottom-up science. There was a question about labor and capital and how this, oh, this yes. kind of technology may affect the, the relations between between
2: them.
1: I don't know. The United States has had a long-term decline in organized labor's strength and um, share of the national product. Um, that's been reversed a little bit in recent years, but um, it is, is still largely the knowledge economy is, is resented by people who are outside the knowledge economy. And I don't I don't see any lessening of that, um, that tendency into the future. And that's why the fact that males are not doing as well in school as females um, has a tremendous impact on the, the sort of social stability and social cohesion of this society.
0: Anika, do you want to come back on any of these three questions?
2: Yeah, just a few quick points. I did not say that the nutrition quotient of GM crops has been declining. I was pointing to a recent article which shows that The green revolution rices and wheat are nutritionally much poorer than the more dispersed agroecologically adaptive heirloom biodiversity that they replaced. So you know, just for instance, um, rice has experienced a 33% drop in zinc, uh, 27% decrease in iron. I just pulled these numbers out since you asked. Uh, And zinc and iron and wheat have fallen by 30% and 19% respectively. And I will again say that these are all findings that actually anthropologists noted when they were working with the first generation of farmers to try out green revolution hybrids and high yielding varieties, so called high yielding varieties. Um, but but these were completely dismissed uh, these concerns. And today, in 2023, you know we have getting confirmation. So um, I will. I will see, you know, history and political economy, I feel we are do not we are not appreciating the larger lessons coming from there. Um, you know, today we can debate whether GM mustard is important for edible oil, India's oil security, uh, edible oil security or not. Nonetheless, the fact is that why do we have an edible oil shortage to begin with? because the Green Revolution marginalized oil seeds. And incentivized farmers who would were growing oil seeds earlier to switch wholesale to rice and wheat. Uh, so uh, you know we start from one flawed model, and then instead of fixing that flawed model and again adopting a system science approach to them, we again do small small tweaks. And 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 I mean I I don't really see this either as efficient or particularly democratic. And on a final point. Um, you know, the, where does science come from and does that matter? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's an old debate in the Green Revolution that M.S. Swaminathan had with uh, another rice scientist called C.R. Richarya in India. And Richarya was of the view that it, to, Im- to improve yields and to improve quantums of food production, it is better to work in a decentralized manner with farmers' varieties and Swaminathan was of the view that um, that you know a expensive research project at a central location will produce a fewer, a relatively fewer number of varieties which have to be adopted in widely different agroecologies and stabilized through you know basically chemi- agrochemical routines. It, Swaminathan's model is the one which uh, which won in history, but I don't see why um, you know especially since. Countries of the global south have small research budgets relative to those of the global north, and they still have access to biodiversity. I would, you know, I, I would say yes. The location of science matters, and thrifty science is better, especially if it takes a systems view of the problem.
0: Thank you, Aniket. I know that students seem maybe chafing at the bit to get on to reading week and perhaps stopping at the pub with us for those of us who are in London uh, after this is over but I know we have one more question anyway
5: from David Lewis and we'll see if there's any Thank you James thanks um yeah thank you to Ron and Aniket for a really interesting discussion and it's so much food for thought there actually most of some of, well some of what I was going to ask uh, has already been preempted, I think, by the recent very interesting uh, discussion. But um I just wanted to say one thing, which is that b. T. Brinjal case that you that you mentioned I think is is something interesting um in the sense that it confirms, I think, all the fears of the lack of gun- lack of governability of of these kind of technologies, because if it's if it's being happily grown in Bangladesh i mean the border with india is entirely permeable i mean there's no there's no possibility that india's effort to control it you know will be successful you know and so i think i mean i don't know enough about the science to know for example whether seeds can be reused or whether or not they you know it can be independently grown of seed providers but that was one thing i was interested in second thing i think and what strikes me from from this really interesting discussion is that you know Ron, you what? Well, I think both of you are making a making a strong case for multidisciplinarity at many different levels within within the natural sciences, but also much much more broadly than that. But also for a, for a form of systems thinking, and also for better public you know, public accountability, and. And that makes me think about this. Well, on the one hand, the need to think creatively about how we may need to reorganize the research infrastructure. And I wondered if you had any comments on the state of the CGIR system, for example, in terms of providing anything there. But it also seems to beg the question of the need to reorganize universities as well. I mean, this, it, you know, it seems that we're hopelessly out of step with needs on this and it made me think as well of this field of what we were calling a few years ago the field of the public understanding of science we used to have a lot of people being appointed in universities Mm. and media tasked with this public understanding of science and it may be my imagination but it seems to me that's sort of faded quite a lot in the last in the last few years as an idea so anyway I you know there were so many different strands of thinking that that you prompted i just wanted to get a few comments from both of you on those themes thank you
0: maybe failing because bill gates and uh, musk and whatnot seem to have the
5: yeah i know i think so hopefully over
0: can can i can i pass first to Aniket and then to ron for kind of last words and answer to these questions cat first, maybe.
2: Yeah, I uh, th- thank you, David, very much. Um, yes, I, um, you know, we abs- I, I completely endorse what you said about the importance of multidisciplinary uh, approach to these problems. Uh, with, and the only caveat I would say is that, especially as far as state science, I mean, uh, state science is concerned we have to start with at least some kind of prioritization of what is the problem that we're tackling and at what level. That's the first point. And uh, yeah, public understanding of science, I, I think it's a real, uh, it's, it's, it's a real shame that that moment seems to have passed because if anything, you know, um, we, we need much more of that right now uh, we need much more of it because of precisely the kind of challenges to, you know, science wholesale that, you know, that Ron has so importantly captured, articulated today. And also uh, on a lesser, I mean, on, on an equally important but less often said point, which is the point that Sheila Jasnow has made a number of times that, the public understanding of science cannot only be working, or or Brian Wynn may, has made it too, cannot be only working with a deficit model. So we need a public understanding of science which is also starting from the bottom and translating the kind of concerns that are there on the ground into an agenda for science and technology. So a bi-directional public understanding of science, if I may.
0: Thank you. Ron. Just to uh,
1: Aniket's last remark, um... In in our country, we have to worry about the pushing of all science out of textbooks by what's called uh, creation science. I mean, we the the, the uh, attack on secular science is really quite serious in this country. Banning books, taking them out of libraries, and so on. Um, so we 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 face kind of a return to the dark ages in a in, in a literal sense. The dark ages weren't so dark as they're trying to make them now in the American South. Um, but uh, I want to make this uh, this comparison to this permeable boundaries and think about the war on drugs. When, when, I was, mm-hmm. when I was just like a teenager, we constantly read about the war on drugs and the money going to the war on drugs and the arming the border and sending arms to South America so that they could take care of the war on drugs. Continuous battle against the war on drugs. Well, they're here now. There's never been a success in the war on drugs. Yeah. High-value products will cross national boundaries. People will take the risk if the return is high enough. That's true of seeds or drugs. For example, the the, um, the first BT cotton in India it was illegal. It was underground. It was smuggled in from the United States. Um, and this, the Argentina's um, tremendous growth in, in soy production and so on, came directly out of smuggled, uh, actually taken technology that uh, Monsanto couldn't reinforce. Monsanto would constantly go to the U.S. government and say, go beat up these Argentines. They've got to respect our patent. And the Argentines would say, go suck an egg. Mm. Uh, They ignored them for many, many years, which then spread to Brazil um, as well. So you're not going to stop trans-border movement of either knowledge or germplasm, that just isn't going to happen. If we can't even stop the movement of of, of um, uh, forbidden final products, we're never gonna stop the germplasm or the components or the knowledge of new products. So that that is not going to happen. And in fact, CRISPR makes things much worse. As Jennifer Dudna told me, uh, it's scarless surgery. Now we have we have students on this campus uh, at at Cornell who can can CRISPRize things, make new new versions of them. Uh, they can work on fruit flies and things like that. But they have that knowledge and that capacity, and they're you know 20 years old, 19 years old. <laughs> um, I don't see how you're going to stop human inventiveness and the sharing of new technologies and new information. I don't think there's. Any way you can do that, uh, and I think that that you just hope that these are built up into positive-leaning institutions rather than negative-leaning institutions. But if you're trying to think about CRISPRing new uh, uh, diseases that you can unleash on your foes, uh, this is this has been going on for many centuries, trying to figure out some way to defeat your enemy by getting one step ahead of them technologically. Um this this is true of poison gas, for example. Okay, so I don't I don't think there's any way to do that. Uh the, as to the multidisciplinarity, um I, I I worry a lot because we are losing the humanities in the United States. Um they don't pay off. The universities are cutting back on humanities faculties. Um, and of course, I worry much about that. Uh it it disturbs us. Um, But you can't critique science if you don't understand it. So I think there's a kind of a basic level of understanding. If people don't know any molecular biology, they can't possibly understand what the issues are with changing uh, a bit of of DNA here and a bit of DNA there. It's just not not possible. And we're facing uh, very difficult humanities-based questions right now about um, things like uh, editing uh, uh, embryos, right? You you grow embryos in test tubes. Uh, you've got, know, let's say you have six embryos and you do the DNA testing and one of them turns out to be, you know, potentially six foot two blonde white male. Well, that's the one you may want to keep, right? If you can look into the genome of the uh, uh, of in vitro fertilization outcomes and you can get rid of the uh, the, the ones you don't want and keep the ones you do. These kinds of issues are going to come up. Uh, and of course, they're stratified by wealth, by access, and they're poorly understood by a, a population that doesn't really understand basic science. So those are, those are huge issues on the plate, and I don't see how there is any way to stop. Uh, there's even a group in the United States called uh, Self-Hackers, that are trying to hack their own genomes. Um, and I don't see any way to stop this. I just, I don't, I I'm, I wish I had some, uh, some wisdom on that. Um, in terms of decentralization, okay. Yeah, decentralization, but uh, if we don't have any national regulation of any kind, I, I'm not sh- sure how we prevent, oops, sorry. I'll stop there because I, I've, okay. I've
0: said enough. I'm, okay. Ron, I really want to thank you. I mean, it's so good to listen to you again. And Annie it's been a pleasure to, to, and we want to have you back and preferably both of you in person at some point would be great. I mean, I almost feel like we're back in the pandemic, but at least it allows us, you know, with no budget for this. I'm trip. ready. Yes. Yeah. Just- it allows us with no budget for this series to be able to listen to both of you from the US of A at the moment. (laughs) So I remind the students who are left here online or in the room that when we come back from reading week, we're going to have the first of the development studies alumni lectures with Paolo Derenzio, who is an Italian based in Brazil and has a long experience since he graduated from the MSC Development Studies, uh, many years ago, um, working in in development policy and practice and research and teaching. And he's going to be talking about uh, citizens and civil society's influence over taxation movements. So please come back for that. That will be the Monday after we return from Reading Week. And I think I speak on behalf of everybody, Ron and Aniket, uh, to say thank you very much for giving us your time and maybe stay on online for a couple of seconds after we we go on thank
3: you guys very much
0: thank you thank you